0: would it um, be like to meet with God what would it actually be like to stand before him and unmistakably hear his voice how do you get to meet with God well according to Hollywood it's not a big problem it's an easy thing to meet with God Uh, Remember the film Bruce Almighty a few years ago, where God visited Jim Carrey in the form of Morgan Freeman, wearing a big white suit, and um, he gives Carrey, Carrey's character, the opportunity to try doing a better job as God for a few weeks. And the take-home message really was, well, don't be hard on God; it's a really tough job. The popular view is that meeting with God is just like chatting to any other human being uh, you've ever met. He's very unassuming. Uh, Very approachable, very like us, God in our own sort of casual image. But that is not what we learn from the Bible. That's not what we learn from the book of Exodus. So please open your Bibles again to Exodus chapter 24. I'm just going to take the time to read that chapter. Exodus chapter 24. Let's just pray before we read God's word again, shall we? Father, we read here that it is an awesome thing to meet with you. And so we thank you that we do have the privilege to come, not before Mount Sinai, but to come through the Lord Jesus Christ into your very presence. And we ask now that you'd help us to understand these ancient events to see what it teaches us of your holy character, of the calling upon your people, and how we should relate to you now through the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us understanding and clarity and give us faith to obey, we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. This morning, so it might be slightly different to the Pew Bible in front of you, but uh, it shouldn't be that different. Exodus chapter 24. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablet of stone with the law and the commandment. Which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. What we've just read there in chapter 24 is really a worship service. Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr when he addressed the council, he spoke of this event at Sinai as the gathering of the church in Sinai. And here we have, in a sense, a church service. It's a very special sort of service. It is a covenant service. Making service. You get a call to worship. As we had this morning. Verse 1. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. That for them meant bowing down before God. There was a call to worship. A group came. They bowed down in worship. And then key to worship here is that God spoke. He spoke to Moses and Moses told the people, verse 3, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now those two phrases encapsulate these kind of four chapters. The words of the Lord are the words that were spoken back in chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words and by that We mean the Ten Commandments to refresh your memory. That you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and number ten, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbours. These are the the words that God spoke. And Moses reminded the people of what they heard on that day in Sinai, the ten words as it were from God. He he spoke to them all the words of the Lord. And then secondly, all the rules. Now the rules are the, the section that we have after the Ten Commandments From chapter 20, verse 22, uh, all the way to the end of chapter 23. Uh, The people heard God speaking to them directly, speaking perfectly good Hebrew out of a mountain that was on fire with uh, lightning flashing and thunder breaking. It was an awesome, terrifying sight. And they heard God speak to them in Hebrew, the Ten Commandments. And then Moses uh, is enlisted. They are terrified. They, they can't bear it any longer, even though, in a sense, God had brought them for this very thing. They had been a, a slave nation in Egypt, uh, dominated by Pharaoh, cruelly treated. And yet God, in his grace and mercy, had come to his ancient people because of his promise to their forefather Abraham. He had come to them and rescued them out of Egypt, uh, redeemed them, And brought them through the wilderness to meet with him so that he could be their God and they would be his people. So they'd come for this very thing, to meet with God. And yet what they they saw there so terrified them, uh, so uh, just caused them such anxiety. They said, well Moses, you go ahead. You go and speak to God. And so what we have in chapter 20, verse 22 onwards, is what God said to Moses. The instructions... Now these two things combined, the the words of the Lord and all the rules, are called in verse 7, the book of the covenant. So Moses summarized everything they'd already heard from God, and he declared to them exactly what God had said to him as he'd been up the mountain, all the specific instructions, and they assented. This is what we we will obey that. And then we have this incredible ceremony, this covenant-making ceremony. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Why do we have this in our Bible? Well, because Moses wrote it down. Uh, This wasn't written, you know, Centuries after the event, Moses wrote them down. It was so important and revered, it was passed on and on and on. And so here we are, we are reading eyewitness testimony, we're reading what actually happened. Uh, As remarkable as it would seem to us, this is what happened as God spoke to his people and formed a nation under this covenant. The book of the covenant. And then we have this ceremony, verse 8. Verse 8 which, pour, which uh, involves an altar and sacrifice and blood, which Moses calls the blood of the covenant. And really that's what I want us to consider this morning, the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant. Truly this week, um, as uh, a few weeks ago before we uh, went off on vacation, I started looking at this passage then. I realized it was an act of madness to preach on This larger section. Uh, But there we are. The program is set. So here we are. We'll have to come back some other time to look at closer detail. But let's consider the book of the covenant. To the modern reader, uh, there's much that sounds very foreign and alien here. And uh, if you're not a Christian here today, you might be thinking, well, what have I walked into? Are these people still going around stoning people, killing people? Are there still altars? Is there still blood sacrifices like this? Well, no. No, because uh, what we have here is a moment in history of God dealing with a specific people at a specific time. And these events are part of God's salvation story that point us forward so that we can understand what the the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, was all about. And so we read this... um, as God's inspired word to us, but not God's command to us directly. This was God's command directly to them, a nation that He was forming at that time, at that place in salvation history. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote to his ministry apprentice Timothy, and he reminded him of the central place of the Holy Scriptures in his life as a pastor. And he says this But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those whom you have learned it. This would be equally true of you, Andy, uh, this Sunday. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All of the Bible, including uh, God's law here in the the book of the Covenant, is God's inspired word for us. But we must always read it in the sense that we understand how it first relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is only God's word to us as we understand it through the person And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we do not just merely read these verses and apply it directly to us today. That would be to deny the central event of history, the central revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, this was a great day of revelation, but nothing compared to the greatness of God coming in human flesh through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must read these verses. Through the light and the coming of Jesus Christ, we must first understand, as we read them, how it related to their context. We need to see how they point forward to Jesus, and then we can begin to see how we apply this to us as disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not those who live under this Old Testament covenant, uh, but we're under the New Covenant that's made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Just going to make some general comments. Uh, not going to work through all the specific details that we have here. I don't know whether you've ever worked for a boss who gets really angry with you because you don't do something that he never told you in the first place. Have you ever had a boss like that? Or maybe you've had those experiences, one of those classic arguments with your spouse where they're all exasperated at you because you didn't manage to read their mind. You ever had one of those things? Well, God is not like that. At the outset of this covenant relationship, God graciously makes himself very clear what his will for their life is as as, as God's people. He makes it very clear. He speaks them directly, the Ten Commandments. And not only does God give them the Ten Commandments, but then we have this section which really is is an application of the Ten Commandments. As you you sit down and read through the whole list, it will first appear a bit random. But actually, every point of it, in some way, relates back to the Ten Commandments. It is an exposition of, an application of the Ten Commandments in the real world. What happens if you get in a fight and you punch someone and they knock their tooth out? What happens if um, somebody uh, borrows your stuff and never gives it back to you? What happens if somebody accidentally breaks into your home at night and and in fear you strike him and, and, and knock him dead? What happens? in these practical issues of life. They're the issues that are basically full in the newspaper, aren't they? Property rights, um, murder, adultery, divorce, marriage, all these practical issues, possessions, they're all, in a sense, laid out here in some sample illustrations and examples of the Ten Commandments. In your bulletin, you'll see that I've, I've put a breakdown of the text here. If you look there, it says, Sermon Note, Structure of Exodus 20 through to the end of 23. And as you look at that, you see that there is a definite structure in here. And what it reveals is a kind of what spirituality means for God's ancient people. We live at a time where it's quite cool to be spiritual. And um, it can mean any sort of number of things for people. Well, this is what spirituality meant for them. It meant all of life worship. Uh, Look at the beginning in chapter 20 in verse 23. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver Or gods of gold. That's what you shouldn't make. God's pretty clear about that. You should think about that when we get to the golden calf in a few weeks. But look at what they should make. Verse 24. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. The people's solution to the holy demands of God was to, to get Moses to be the mediator But verse 24 gives God's other solution, an authorized altar. They could come and approach God through the means of this sort of rough, uncut altar and through sacrifice. This is how this people could relate to God, by offering animal sacrifices. And look at the second half of verse 24. There God says, I will come to you and bless you. And I think it's interesting, before you are told of all God's rules for their lives, there's a prior place given to meeting with God through the altar. Obeying these laws was not the way that they earned salvation. God had already saved them, he'd already rescued them out of Egypt. But here's a pattern of life for a redeemed people to be able to live to please their God, their redeeming God. And look at what you've got at the end of these covenant rules. Look at chapter 23, verse 10. He instructs them at the end of the section how to worship him through the calendar events of their lives. So if you look at 23, verse 10, when they enter the promised land, they are to live in a seven-year cycle that points them to the God who brings all the blessings of life. Look at verse 10. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. And they're to observe a seven-day cycle that points them to their God. Verse 12, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the aliens as well may be refreshed. And in verses 14 to 17 of that chapter, uh, three times a year they're called to come together to remember God and his dealings with them through three feasts. The feast of unleavened bread, the feast of harvest, the feast of ingathering. So I think here, just looking at the shape of this structure, you see a pattern of Israel's life that that, that should be true, I think, of God's people today. A life encompassed by acknowledging and worshipping God. God comes first and last. He, he comes to meet with them, it says, if they come to the altar with sacrifices in chapter 20, verse 24. And they go to meet with him in chapter 23, verse 17. Week in, week out, year in, year out, walking with God in loving, faithful obedience. Now this is biblical spirituality. Sometimes we think about spirituality, about having some big, awesome experiences. But under the new covenant, just as under the old, it's about the daily rhythms of starting each day and ending each day with God by reading and trusting his words and praying to through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the week-by-week commitment, I think, and not to neglect meeting together with fellow Christians at church where we encourage and provoke each other to loving acts of obedience. It is in acknowledging God in all things, thanking him for the gifts of food and drink Uh, For family and for homes, giving him glory in all things. That's the life of biblical spirituality. It may include dramatic experiences, most of the time it will not. It's the rhythm of daily obedience. Is that true of your life? Is that true of your family, your home? And and then if we look into some of the details in here, you've got worship really through everyday ordinary obedience. Uh, These these chapters, they cover the household in chapter 21. It it deals with capital offenses in society, injuries to persons and beasts. It deals with property, finance, business, sexual uh, matters, capital offenses in religion, humane concerns, living under God's authority in state and church and personal character, Deals with integrity and honorable dealings, it deals with a timetable of work and of, of religion. All these areas are addressed because God is the king of the whole of life, and every aspect of our life is an opportunity and an arena to acknowledge Him and worship Him as we seek to understand His word and obey it. To be God's holy people, we are called to reflect the character of and the holiness of God in in our everyday matters. Now it seems that maybe grazing rights for your flocks will be rather a mundane matter. But the truth is that most of our life is caught up with very mundane matters, isn't it? When you're driving your car, when you're doing your shopping, when you're disciplining your kids, when, you know, life actually is pretty mundane. And yet, at every single detail, we as God's people, if we put our trust in Christ, we can read Uh, these commands and trace them as they go through the coming of Christ into the New Testament and we can find ways that we, day by day, are called to lives of obedience. All of life is the arena of God. I think when I first studied this section, I I, um, thought, well, what do you do do with this? Uh, I, I wish we kind of, did have time in the preaching schedule now to do a 10-week series, but we, we haven't. Where we could go into looking more detail at these, the teaching that is here. Actually, as you dig in and look at it, uh, and compare it with the codes around the nations at that time, we have here some amazing teaching about the caring and compassionate God that call them to it. We have here that God values life. Uh, Anyone, it says, who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. God values life so much that he calls for the death penalty of those who intentionally murder. And so it matters to God how we treat one another. There's even a law here that talks about personal injury for a woman who is pregnant causing a a, a premature birth. And what comes out of that is actually God cares about the rights of Of the unborn child. God cares about life at the end of life. It matters how we treat one another. We have a God who cares about truth and property rights. It matters if we steal. It matters how we take care of our personal property. It matters how we care for those who don't have what we have. God cares about social justice. Look at chapter 22 and verse 21. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you are aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. We should be a people who are compassionate for those who are disadvantaged. Because God cares for those who are disadvantaged. What's remarkable as you read this account and compare it to other law codes of the time is that God gave rights fully to every human being, both men and women. Very unusual. And it didn't matter what social class you were. There are other law codes where... Certainly, if you were the high classes, you had very great rights of protection, but not if you were the working classes. Not in Israel. There were rights for every single uh, type of person in every different stage of life. And there we see the compassion of God in chapter 22 and verse 26. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear. For I'm compassionate. God cares about bank loans. God cares about uh, loan sharks. God cares about all these practical matters of life. What is the law that Jesus commands us to obey? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And verse 32. Matthew 22 and verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is Jesus' summary of the law. Love God wholeheartedly. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yourself, He said to his disciples in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. There's so much you could go into looking at these commands. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating as we have a new government that's thinking about what do we do uh, with all these prisons and what do we do with uh, matters of, of of the law and what do we do with expenses? Well, I think it's a fascinating time to go back and read these commands and see how things were dealt with back then. Now, the coming of Jesus changes lots of things. These were written to a nation, but we're no longer in that part of history. And so those penalties and those civil laws do no longer directly apply to the Christian today. Although I believe we can take these principles and look at ways in which we need to relate to, other, to each other with justice and care. The sacrificial elements, the ceremonial elements that we have here, they're all pointing forward to the one great sacrifice. I'm going to think about that in a moment so they go by. But I think our job as we read these is to look at the moral principles and trace them to the coming of Christ and see how we apply them directly to our lives. That is how we should teach that. And I, and I don't have enough time today to, to show that in specifics, so and maybe we'll come back to that. But that is the book of the covenant. Come back to chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24. Back to this worship service. We've had the call to worship, they've come forward, bowed down before it. Moses has spoken the book of the covenant to them. They've agreed it. He wrote it all down, verse 4. And then he makes an altar. Remember, this is how God said they could come and relate to him. Exodus 24, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificial peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Here is a representation of the meeting place with the Lord. On the altar is fire. It's a picture of God's holiness. And that's where the sacrifices are placed. And round the altar are placed 12 stone pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And here set in stone is a picture of how the people of God can relate to a holy God. And what is incredible as you look at this is the graphic nature of how it is sealed. It is sealed in blood. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, verse 6. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, Very solemnly. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then he took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What's going on here? They've been given... The law of God. This is how they are to live lives of holiness. This is how they live in, in relationship to a holy God. He tells them the laws and they say, okay, we're going to do everything that is said. We're going to obey it completely. And then Moses starts throwing blood everywhere. What is this saying? Well, firstly, it says that God is serious about obedience This was a covenant sealed with blood. In ancient agreements at this time, a covenant was marked by an animal sacrifice, often with the animal being cut in two, as if to say, well, whoever breaks this covenant, this this is the threat of judgment. This is what's going to happen if you break the covenant. But the blood here, too, is a sign of mercy. Here's a demonstration of how the relationship could continue If they fail to obey it. Because this is what's so striking. They say, yeah, we're going to obey it all. And Moses says, yeah, that's right. And he throws blood all over them. God calls them to walk in obedience. And even as they promise to do so, there is provision made for their disobedience. Because the thing is, from Adam's fall onwards, we are the sort of people who love to make other idols. We are the sort of people who steal other people's stuff. We are the sort of people who lust uh, after sexual impurity. We are the sort of people who cannot keep the commands of a holy God. And the very outset of this covenant, it is sealed with blood to mark that. This is the only way they to be able to maintain uh, this relationship with a holy God. Our sin, our rebellion, our breaking of the Ten Commandments does offend the holy God. It does arouse his anger and his judgment. But there is a way that we can be forgiven and it is through the place of blood. Do you notice where the blood goes first? It goes on the altar. The blood is directed in a Godward direction. The blood in some way sort of propitiates God. It turns His, his anger aside, it satisfies his justice in some way. It's as if the the blood of the sacrifices was a substitute in the place of the people. Blood, as it were, brings the people to God and blood maintains the people in a context of an obedient life. And then the blood covers them as he sprinkles it over them. This is the only way They'll be able to keep walking with a holy God through the blood of sacrifice. Someone else will die in their place. Someone else must die in their place or they will die. God's anger must be turned away and their sins must be covered. They must be forgiven. They must be shielded and covered over with blood, the blood of the covenant. Now I hope you realize if you're a visitor today that we haven't had a line of pigeons and sheep and oxen. We haven't cut anyone's throat. You will not find many bloodstains of animals in this building. Now why is that? Because what God was revealing here in picture form is something that was helping them to understand the total seriousness of his holiness and the total need to have someone die in their place and something that was pointing forward to the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. And as we read the Ten Commandments and as we read to the book of the covenant, there was only one man in history who perfectly obeyed every single aspect of it, both in act and intention in heart and, uh, and 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 soul and mind and strength, and that was Jesus Christ. He lived this perfect life that we couldn't live. The book of Hebrews puts it this way: it is impossible for the blood of bull and goats to take away sins. For thousands of years, God's ancient people were being prepared for this willing, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This man who lived the perfect life willingly went to the cross. He shed his blood in the place of sinners. And Christians are those who come under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His death has been applied to them. In in the letter of First John, let's let's turn to it, shall we? First John chapter one. You'll find that. Let's see. I don't have a red Bible here. One John chapter one, and you'll find that on page one thousand two hundred twenty-five. unrighteousness if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives the way that we keep going in a relationship with God is only through personally receiving the benefits of the death of Christ for ourselves his blood must be applied to us and we come day by day confessing our sins to him because it is through his blood that we are maintained in a relationship with God. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, i write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world world this is something that the media will not tell us the God that is represented on the TV and the media is a God that is not interested about sin who makes no demands where there's no need for holiness where we live in a moral vacuum where right and wrong are irrelevant categories but if that is the case then Nothing is there to really hold me accountable. There's no justice, and there's no way of dealing with my guilt and my shame. This sort of sinless, Christless, crossless version of reality is just is not only deceitful but it's empty. But as we come to God's word, we see that there is a holy God. We are sinners. There is a way of forgiveness for all our sins, and it was very costly through Jesus Christ, yet he freely offers it to us. Have you received that gift? Have you come under the blood of Christ? If you come back to Exodus 24, you'll see that this worship service continues. They hear the word of God. They make a confession of faith. They appropriate the benefits of the sacrifice that God has ordained. They are initiated into the covenant. And then verse 9, The leaders, representatively of the people, go and have a covenant meal with God. They have a meal in God's presence. Verse 10, They saw the God of Israel. Verse 11, He did not lay his hand on them. Now, that's because the blood covered them, they, the sin was dealt with and they beheld, verse 11, God and ate and drank with him. Here in an in early proto-form we see the privilege and the blessings of being in Christ. That we can be those who come to Christ, receive forgiveness through baptism initiated into the people of God. Through trusting Christ ongoingly, we walk and have fellowship with God and have the privilege of, of, of not fearing, of having peace with God, of, of acknowledging Him in all of life, at the beginning, at the end of the day, acknowledging all His goodness, all the good gifts of creation, week by week, year by year, living our lives for the glory of God. It is a great and glorious privilege. And if you have not began that, Please come and speak to me, Andy, or an elder of this church, and begin that today. Let's pray.